Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Writer Jenny Shank grew up surrounded by people from very different backgrounds, which taught her all about finding common ground. Going to that Wu-Tang Clan concert, driving across town, talking to someone with a different perspective than I have is really worth it. On today's show, we talk with her about her new collection of short stories called Mixed Company. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Mixed Company is a new collection of stories that create moments of connection across gender, age, race, and geography. The author, Jenny Shank, writes about characters finding themselves and each other. It's set predominantly in Denver, the city where she grew up. Shank currently lives in Boulder and teaches in the Mile High MFA program at Regis University and the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver. Her stories, essays, satire, and reviews have appeared in publications including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Dear McSweeney's. Mixed Company, which won the 2020 George Garrett Fiction Prize, will be published on November 15th. And Jenny Shank joins us now to share more about her book and the people she writes about. Jenny, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I... I'm really excited to share uh, more about these stories. I thought we could start with you reading a passage from Mixed Company. Sure. I am going to read from a story called Local Honey, and it's about a couple of aging white hippies from Boulder. They have some fertility issues and they adopt a black son. And when he's a teenager, he has some normal teenage angst, but they are worried and they decide that they need to bond with him. And they decide a good way to do that is to take him to his favorite show, which is the Wu-Tang Clan. And um, so they all go to Denver to the Fillmore Auditorium. And as you can imagine, um, the mom and dad are a little overwhelmed there and they end up getting divided in the crowd. Hugh is the name of the son and the mom's name is Gwen. And Gwen has made her way up to the balcony to, t- to kind of get out of the fray of the crowd in the middle ballroom. And she's watching Hugh as he is trying to get close to the stage. Just as Hugh was about to breach the packed space within a 15 foot radius of the stage, a woman squeezed in next to Gwen, jostling her and making her lose track of Hugh Quit hogging this good view, the woman said. I drove all the way from Pueblo and I had to beg my sister to watch my kids. I'm not gonna miss anything. The woman looked barely out of her teens, wore thick black eyeliner and had a Wu-Tang tattoo on her bared shoulder, a sharp, angry W that resembled a bat. Gwen nodded and smiled, but then the house lights dimmed. The Wu-Tang clan burst from backstage. The music started and the woman went absolutely insane, grinding her hips in a roving semicircle and flailing her arms, repeatedly smacking Gwen in the glasses, trying to bump her back from the balcony. Gwen gripped the railing and attempted to maintain her space so she could watch Hugh. Gwen had never experienced such bass before, emanating from demonic speakers stacked to the rafters, pounding in her chest so hard her heartbeat was obscured. 
Gwen could sense the damage she was doing to her hearing and believed she could pinpoint the precise moment each of the cilia in her inner ear trembled and was lost. The members of the Wu-Tang Clan kept emerging from and retreating into the wings, strutting back and forth across the stage, pumping their arms, never standing still or remaining assembled long enough for Gwen to make an accurate count of them. Every time a new one appeared, the crowd's already seismic roar increased, and it seemed to Gwen that each successive member was somehow even more famous and beloved than the last. Whenever Gwen thought she had gained a fix on Hugh, the woman would slam into her with her hip, disguising the assault as a dance move. That is just amazing. I actually feel like I'm right there just being assaulted by the crowd at the Fillmore. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit about this collection of stories. How would you describe it for people who are, you know, ready to dive in? So Mixed Company is a collection of funny stories about people trying to reach across chasms caused by differences in race and culture in native language and disabilities and age and gender and form some kind of connection, um, friendship, love, or at least mutual respect. And because it's funny, oftentimes their efforts go awry just as uh, Gwen's effort to bond with her son by going to the Wu-Tang Clan with him went a little off the rails. Um, That happens a lot (laughs) in my stories. But my characters keep reaching out to each other. They don't. They don't stop trying. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of your life experiences that have informed a lot of the stories in Mixed Company, including this one, Local Honey. Yes. So um, I grew up in Denver during the era of court-ordered busing for racial integration. So I went to the Denver Public Schools and I was bused all over town um, to all different communities, to all different cultures. I was immersed in all different languages. And I just got used to being around a lot of people that were different from me and sharing space with them. And so I think a lot of times I find stories in places and incidents where people with different backgrounds are kind of forced to be together, are mixed up together, and have to come to some kind of understanding with each other. Yeah, tell me more about your early childhood. You mentioned you grew up uh, in Denver and were bused to schools. It was the era of uh, desegregation within Denver public schools. Was it your parents' decision to, you know, send you to school across town, or was that your decision? So we arrived in Colorado in 1980 when I was four. And so my parents were from Nebraska and they weren't here during, there was a divisive period when busing was being put into place and argued over. And there were things like a bombing at a a bus depot and there were all kinds of protests and um, they were not here for that. They arrived after everything had settled down. All the white people that were gonna leave town to avoid busing had left Um, and they, they came okay, and um, they found out, okay, what's our public school? Oh, it's across town. All right, let's check it out. So um, my mom was from a little town in Nebraska called Ulysses. I don't even know if it's a town. It's like a farming area. And she went to a one-room schoolhouse growing up. And she was the only person in her grade until she got to middle school. And so she always longed for classmates And I think she visited the school. It was Cheltenham, which was near the old Mile High Stadium. 
And she just thought, this is a bright school. It's full of kids and teachers and she'll have classmates and, you know, it's free because it's public school. So good bargain. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what we did. We, I just rode the bus. I got on the bus when I was six and went across town every day. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jenny Shank, the author of Mixed Company, a new collection of short stories set in 1980s Denver. What was your relationship like with your classmates? Well, um, I was really influenced by what they were into. Since I was, I think every school I went to, white people ended up being in the minority because of so many white families had left. So I was either going to schools that were majority Mexican-American or schools that were, were majority Black. And I was really influenced by the pop culture and the culture that they liked, the stories that they told. I think the first ghost story I ever heard was La Llorona, told by some of my classmates at Cheltenham. And um, I remember I had all kinds of different teachers too. And I remember I had a native teacher who told a story about a, a haunted mesa that I have never forgotten. I heard it in first. <laughs> um, and so I was really influenced by um, their stories and their backgrounds. And we, I made a lot of friends. We couldn't always see each other, especially when we were little, when we lived way across town. But every once in a while, you know, your parent, parent would haul you out to a birthday party somewhere <laughs> across town. But then by the time you got to high school, you really did bond with each other because you were on sports teams and doing activities together. So um, it was a great experience. And I still, to this day, have friends and people that I know that I probably would have never met without busing. Right. And in I think the second story in Mixed Company, you write about, uh, you know, the main character wants to get together with her locker partner to go to a movie, um, but there are difficulties that that she does not anticipate. Yes. So that one, and that one I think is a little bit about her not, she, the main character is white and she doesn't really understand the reality of her locker partner's life. Her locker partner is black. And that one said a Cole Middle School, where I went to in Northeast Denver. Um, she So her locker partner, her mom works on the weekend, so she can't drop everything and drive her somewhere. And they just never kind of get it together to meet up outside of school. But they end up um, forming at least a semi-friendship during school hours, I think, in the story. Okay. Did you ever have experiences like those that you describe in your stories, you know, reaching out across differences you know, maybe it doesn't work out each time, but continuing to try. Yes. I mean, I think that's the story of my life. <laughs> I, I did. A, I've did a lot of um, I've I've done some things since I've been adult where I I've mentored kids um, from from different cultures than, than mine. And um, I love that. But, you know, it doesn't it's not going to be um, a fairy tale story every time you do that because um, people are human and the other human that you're reaching out to has has wants and desires of their own that are maybe going to clash and conflict with what you're going for. And I think just in reaching out and encountering and communicating with each other, you get to know a little bit better about the other person's perspective and maybe alter your own. What first made you want to be a writer or what kind of attracted you to becoming a writer? So I can't remember exactly because it was so young. I always loved stories. And before I could write, my mom would take dictation and write down the stories I wanted to tell. So I made little books with her 
And then when I got to elementary school in about first or second grade, we all had a chance to um, write a book and illustrate it and publish it at school. And so I remember that experience really well. We, I, I think a teacher typed my story and then I wrote, did the drawings and then we bound it with like glue and cardboard and, and cloth and tape. And we made two copies of it so that we could take one home and put one in the library and the other kids could check it out. And um, I remember, so Cheltenham Elementary, our mascot was Chumley. It was this big whale. And there was this big plaster whale that you could sit in to read. And so if you ever saw a kid like checking out your book and reading it inside Chumley, um, that was the height of literary fame in first grade. Later, you studied creative writing at CU Boulder. Uh, talk about how that experience shaped you as an author. So I think the main thing that was important to me at CU Boulder is that I met Lucia Berlin, who is a wonderful short story writer who published with small presses during her life. And then after she died, about 10 years um, after she died or so, a major press put out a collection of her stories called Manual for Cleaning Women. And it became a bestseller, an international bestseller, and won all these prizes and Currently, I think Pedro Almodovar is adapting some of the stories into a movie. And I think that Kate Blanchett is planning to star. So she became a big deal after, but she was always a big deal to me because she was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. She was supportive. Um, I think because her own circumstances were that she had never gotten famous or published anything anywhere great she supported anyone at any stage in your writing. She didn't think there was any difference between a writer who was winning lots of awards and a writer who was just starting out. You were all equals in this struggle of writing. And she treated us like that with respect and supported us. And I think that just gave me the encouragement to keep going with it. Um, and you need to have encouragement from somewhere because there's so much discouragement from most places. So she um, convinced me of that. And I worked with her both years and um, I wrote a novel that that one didn't get published, but then it gave me the skills to write the next one that did. It's wonderful to have a mentor like that. Do you remember any memorable you know, pieces of advice that she gave you? Well, I do remember that... Um, she did not want you to be false with any of your characters. Like she would catch you on that. If you were, if you were writing something that seemed false, she'd say, no, nope, you can't do that. Um, so she always wanted you to um, give all your characters their full humanity. And that included, you know, telling jokes and being sad and being happy and all of it. So she wouldn't let you get away with um, a flat character. We'll be back in just a moment with more of my conversation with Boulder-based author, Jenny Shank. She'll talk more about recent experiences that have shaped her as a writer and about what it's like to release a book during a global pandemic. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm talking with Jenny Shank, the author of a new collection of stories that feature characters from very diverse backgrounds, finding points of connection across boundaries of gender, race, age, and socioeconomic status. Jenny, you mentioned that your mentor, the late Lucia Berlin, would never let you get away with writing a flat character. 
the characters in Mixed Company all feel very real. Who are these people you write about? Are they based on people you know from your real life? For the most part, the people are not based on anyone. The situations are based on real situations oftentimes that I've been in. Um, it's funny because when I write a novel, I make it up entirely, I think because there's nothing in my life that is as grand in scope as a novel. But for short stories, I have little incidents, little conflicts, little things I wonder about. Did I do that right? And I'll write stories about them. Um, and the people in the stories are kind of composites. Like I make observations of people that I know but they're never based on anyone you could recognize. I hope no one would think that they are. <laughs> um, and, um, but I think that they feel real because I do put um, observations you know, of people, of friends, of rivals in, into them in sort of subverted ways. And many of the characters in your work are people of color. And could, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you navigate that. So the first, that's a good question. And the first part of my answer toward that is that um, in recent years, the publishing industry has recognized that there has been a historic lack of publishing and promoting books by people of color. Um, and it started to change a little, a little bit. I think it's coming along, especially in the genre of literary fiction. And I think that needs to continue because we need to keep hearing stories directly from people in those communities. and. Um, and I do my parts to help that as in my role as a teacher and a book reviewer. I really love reading stories by people different from me and recommending them. Um, so that's one part of the question. The other part of the question is what, what should a white writer do given that we want to emphasize um, people of color telling their own stories? I think that as a, from my perspective as a book reviewer, I've been seeing lots of writers, white writers setting their stories in time periods and location where there are just only white people there as a, as a way maybe to avoid that difficulty of writing about a character that's different from them. Um, and so that answer for me as a writer doesn't work. I think because of my background and because um, I just don't think it's right. Um, there's a really great book of literary criticism called White Flights by Jess Rowe. And he writes about some famous writers that have set their work in cities that are famously diverse, but you never see a non-white character. And he's really eloquent and writes a lot about that. But basically he's like, that's weird. <laughs> that's my summation of his, his brilliance and eloquence. Um, that's weird um, to set something in a diverse place and never have a character of color cross your page. Um, so I, I plunge into that space, you know, with trepidation, but with, I, I don't want to be a coward. I, I want to write stories with all kinds of people in them. So I try very, very hard to get it right. And um, I write usually from my perspective character is usually a white character because I somehow, I don't feel it's my right to take on the perspective of, of a person of color, but I try to make the other characters in the story have equal agency. They drive the story forward just as much as the perspective character does. They're not props for the perspective character. And I try to make them to be real complex human beings. Um, and it's not up to me to decide whether I've succeeded or not. Um, the readers can tell me, you know, it's the reader's sacred right to look at a book, say, and throw it, throw it across the room. That's their, their right if they want to. 
but I try, I did try really hard and I thought about it carefully. And the answer for me as a writer is to just keep including everybody in my stories as best I can and keep blundering towards that connection that my characters are blundering toward. You mentioned connection, and it feels like your book is coming out at a time when people really are searching for meaningful connections, whether that's in real life or or through reading. I mean, is that something you consciously think about when you're sitting down to write something? I think so, because... I think that you feel like a story has happened when the characters come together and they alter each other in some way, in their perspective, in their trajectory in life. It doesn't feel like a story has happened when characters just brush past each other and don't really interact. So I think that a connection is crucial for a story as it is for life because um, that's what we feel is important. Um, and I think we we notice it as we've been isolated from each other as like our kids um, were out of in-person school for a long time. And I notice how much happy they are now <laughs> that even with masks and all the other rules to be together with other people, we just have to do it. Um, and it's also where stories come from. You don't get a lot of stories of you alone in your room, in your basement. Um, that wouldn't be a good story to read. It'd probably be boring. <laughs> And a little too close to home, maybe, for <laughs> the last 18 months. Yes. When um, talking about your writing and the way you um, work with characters of color, I'm wondering, do you personally do anything to make these portrayals as accurate and sensitive as possible? Do you have? Do you ask people to read your work, like a sensitivity reader? I do have... Um people that I, I exchange work with that we read and I'm really open to um, their comments about that. I've never hired a sensitivity reader yet, but I, I would consider that um, someday if I, if I needed to. I mostly just, I read voraciously. I read um, books by people of all countries, all colors. Um, and um, I listen to people of, of who are different from me. And I have also just grew up that way. And so I think I have some instinct for observations of it, but I'm also really open to anyone telling me if I've gotten anything wrong. Well, your book is set to come out November 15th. Um, it was actually delayed though, right? Maybe by the pandemic or in indirectly? Yes, I think directly. <laughs> the, book, the book industry is having the supply chain issues that every other industry seems to be having. And I was just reading about it, like the many dimensions of the supply chain issues. They're having paper shortages and ink problems, problems with um, the, I guess there's only two main book printers in the U.S. now because those have consolidated and they have problems with getting enough workers and shipping things from here to there. And then if you have a picture book that has a lot of color that's often done in China. So there's, there's trouble with getting those shipped from overseas. So everything is slowing down and a lot of release dates are changing. And that hit me too. Um, I had all my book reading scheduled for after October 15th, when my book was supposed to come out. Um, and I was like, Oh no, what do I do? Cause I've already like made a fool of myself and told everyone, come, come, <laughs> what do I do now? Like say, no, don't, don't come. And then I'll bug you again in a month. And I was like, no, we're going to make this work. So I, my publisher, Texas review press, um, they are really awesome. And I talked to them and they, they decided, Oh, we can get the printer to 
um, drop ship you a couple boxes of books before the actual release date. So they sent me books and then I had my readings at Book Bar and Boulder Bookstore and I was able to bring books there and they still have them. And so I'm calling it um, an exclusive indie bookstore pre-release period. That's how I'm gonna spin it. And then it'll be everywhere on November 15th. <laughs> well, when it finally is more widely available, what do you hope people will take away from, from reading Mixed Company? I hope that it will entertain them, first of all. I hope they'll laugh um, because we all can use a good laugh. And then I hope that it might inspire people to reach out. Um, they might be afraid after seeing all the embarrassing blundered, blunders and cringeworthy events that happened in my stories, but I hope that they'll still think, you know, reaching out, going to that Wu-Tang Clan concert, um, mentoring that child, driving across town, talking to someone um, with a different perspective than I have is really worth it for the interesting stories that you can get out of it. So I hope they'll laugh and then they'll go meet other people. Jenny Shank is the author of Mixed Company, a new collection of short stories. It's set to be published on November 15th. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, with rural birth rates declining and young people moving away, smaller counties across the state are getting even smaller. We'll explore the dynamics of this population shift in Yuma County. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.